This is Duke Coughlin of the Sports Rant with Duke Coughlin. And I just want to take this moment to say that I really enjoy doing this podcast. I really enjoy talking to all the people in the world of sports. And I really hope you enjoy it too. I really hope that I work as some sort of a release for you of your everyday work, everyday life, whether it be work, whether it be you know anything you may be stressed out about. I'm glad that I, I'm here to really help anybody who wants to be helped. That being said, before we get started with the podcast today, I really want to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is suicide prevention and awareness. Over the course of the past week, I lost a very dear family member due to suicide. It's something that me and my family has struggled through over the past week. It is a pain that I've never before felt in my life, and it is easily the most painful. So please, if you know anybody who may be having suicidal thoughts or you're having any suicidal thoughts of your own, please call 1-800-273-8255 or please reach out to somebody. Um, That number I gave is a suicide prevention hotline. They are open 24 hours. They will help you. They will let you know that you are more than just another statistic. You are a human life and that you mean something. One more time, that number is 1-800-273-8255. Please, please, if you are getting bullied, if you are having any second thoughts about your life, anything, if you're dealing with any situation that is really putting stress on you to the point where you think it's just not worth it anymore, please call this number, reach out to somebody. You mean something to somebody, I guarantee it. You may mean more to a lot of people that you never even knew. Thank you. Today on the podcast, I will be talking to former NFL player Cameron Worrell. He was an undrafted free agent for the Chicago Bears, and he churned himself out a pretty nice NFL career. We're going to be talking about his road to the league, as well as his first impressions of the NFL lifestyle, as well as meeting Brian Urlacher for the first time. We're also going to be talking about his head coaches in the league, as well as his one of his big defensive coaches. And we're also going to be talking about his role in Devin Hester's opening kickoff return for a touchdown in the Super Bowl. This is a sports rant with Duke Coughlin. Guys, I am here with former NFL player Cameron Worrell. He is a six-year NFL vet, spent four of those seasons with the Chicago Bears, one with the Miami Dolphins, and I believe he spent some time with the New York Jets. Am I correct? Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I feel like a lot of people would share that testament. Right. <laughs> so uh, how's it going today, Cam? It's great, man. It was actually uh, legit 100 degrees in Fresno, California yesterday, so uh, the summer is coming quickly, but uh, other than that, man, it's sunny. I golfed on Memorial Day, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers to all the the veterans who, who gave the ultimate sacrifice so we could live in this free country, um, but man, looking looking forward to the summer. Yeah, Absolutely. 
I mean, uh, I'm, I'm up here in Wisconsin, and it was almost 100 degrees yesterday, but luckily we got some rain today, so it's cooling down a little bit. That's, it's not good when it's 100 up in Chicago, Wisconsin, because it's humid. See, Fresno, it's, it is dry, so you can survive it, man. That, that 100 and humid is, I had no idea before I moved out of California what that was like, but it is no joke. Yeah, oh, honestly, I'd take dry heat over humidity any day of the week. I, I can handle my own sweat. I can't handle the sweat in the air. I can't handle the water in the air. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, just the, the atmospheric sweat doesn't work for me either. I'm with you. Yeah, no kidding. All right, Cam, so, uh, you know, obviously you brought up you're uh, out in California. That's where you're originally from, correct? Yeah, I grew up in, in a, a town actually called Chowchilla, a very small town a little bit north of Fresno, which is kind of right in the middle of California uh, for people who don't know, uh, but yeah, grew up here, you know, Chowchilla, Fresno City, Fresno State. So I was a Central Cali guy until uh went out to the Midwest. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, I mean, uh, so you started playing football. How old were you about when you started playing football? Well, I played a couple of years of Pop Warner um, as a fifth grader and then as an eighth grader. I was really more of a baseball player growing up. Um, Loved basketball, loved baseball. Uh, didn't play a lot of football. I was really, I was really small. Like I graduated uh, eighth grade at at five three, you know, one hundred ten pounds. So that's not Holy really the crap. body makeup of a football player. Uh, and I didn't actually play again until my junior uh, year at, at Chowchilla High. Like I said, played basketball, played baseball, uh, ran track, ran cross country, kind of did it all, but football and. I mean, <clears throat> crazy story. Uh, my JV baseball coach, Randy Seals, um, actually took the varsity football job and bugged me and bugged me and bugged me to come out and, and try out going into my junior year. Told him I would, and then I didn't. And I ran into him randomly one day at a gas <laughs> station. And, and it was, I mean, it was like a Friday before, um, you know, football started on Monday, like early August. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. I'll come run a 40, and if I run faster than 4.7, I'll play football. He's like, okay, cool. So I go out there on Monday. I run 4.68, and <laughs> and I play football. Now, years later, he would tell me that I, in fact, did not run a 4.68, but ran like a 4.98. <laughs> but he made sure his <laughs> assistant coach knew whatever he runs, you say 4.6-something because this dude's playing <laughs> football. And that, I mean – Honest to God, that's how I ended up playing uh, football in high school. Well, I mean, with all the basketball and track, I'm sure he knew that you'd have the cardio to do it. So, yeah, and and you know, he yeah, I played baseball for him. I was I was kind of a, a utility guy. I played in the outfield, played in the infield. Our catcher went down. I just had never caught before, so went behind the plate and 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 filled in as a catcher. Uh, so yeah, he 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 really wanted me to get out there because uh, you know I was I was a decent athlete and he knew he could find somewhere for me to play because I was a little bit on the crazy side. Um, but it, it all worked <laughs> out, man. I, I, I just, it's, it's so funny. I hearing years later now that we're, you know, peers and adults and get to chop it up on a regular basis, just how, how crazy that all went down and how random it was that I ran into him and told him I would do that out of, out of the blue and, and ended up playing football. Well, I mean, fate has a crazy way to find you, man. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you you can't you can't deny something like that when that happens. It was just 
for some reason was was meant to be for me to go out and and, and do that and uh you know th- thankfully uh became a football player because it uh treated me pretty well yeah i mean six year nfl career you can't complain with that you know i uh you hear all the time about these guys or sadly you don't hear about them who you know, might get into the league as an undrafted free agent or, you know, play great college ball and never even meet the league. So, you know, absolutely, you know, being six years in the NFL, that's incredibly impressive, Cam. Yeah, and I appreciate that, man. I, I really do. Um, you know, it, it's funny because coming out of uh, Fresno State after my senior year, like I went to Fresno State. I actually flunked out because I didn't go to class. I had to go to Fresno City for a year. <laughs> well, I mean, Fresno you City. are a football player then. <laughs> right, right. And unfortunately, yes, that that uh, stereotype was me 100%. So went went to Fresno City. Luckily, uh, Tony Cavilla, who is still the coach there, um, I think it was his second year when I got there. Great, great coach, but, but more was a great person who put me on the right track. I mean, he called me maybe a week before the season started when I had flunked out of Fresno State. And and told me straight up, like, you can play football in college. You know, you were just at Fresno State. I had actually earned the starting safety spot going into what would have been my sophomore year and ended up flunking out of school. He called me and said, look, you can either come here and handle your business and get back to Fresno State or go somewhere else. Or sit at home and do and do nothing, but you're wasting a lot of potential. And and he took me under his wing, showed me what it is to be a responsible adult. Played a year there, went back to Fresno State, um, was a spot starter as a junior, and then my senior year had a, a first team all wax season. And thought, you know, I I was having conversations leading up to the draft, um, you know, the Bears, the Bengals, the Dolphins, the 49ers, so a lot of interest. And actually my former DB coach at Fresno State, uh, Kevin Coyle, who's back with Cincinnati, he's been there for 15 or so years, was the D coordinator in Miami for a couple, and now he's back. He told me there are three type of players that, that exist in the NFL. One is the superstars that everybody knows, you know, Tom Brady, you know, yeah, Le'Veon yeah. Bell, the guys that everybody knows and recognizes. So the guys that are, are in the headlines uh, and on Bleacher Report every single day. Right, exactly, the guys that are getting paid the real, real big bucks. Said, so, and then there are the exceptional athletes. You know, the guys who athletically are you know kind of freaks of nature and they survive on on their their athletic skills. And he said, and the third type of player are. Guys who are just good football players, who are smart, who understand the game, who have enough athletic ability to play, uh, and and that's you. That's where you fit in. So leading up to that second day of the draft, back then there were only two days. You know, talk to the Bengals, talk to the Bears, talk to the Dolphins. All before that second day, they all had me as a you know sixth rounder, seventh rounder. Never got a call. Didn't get a call till the next day. Where I had a mini camp tryout with the Bears, and that's uh, that's how they went down. One of the most uh, man disappointing, frustrating, you know, anxious, you know, world crashing down on you days ever. Um, but really, had I not gone through something like that, I, I'm not sure I would have survived six years in that environment. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, that that's that's what a lot of people that you know maybe do get drafted don't really understand like how lucky they are to get drafted, you know, it's all about perspective. 
you know, and yeah, I could, and, I could, and the Bears had 13 draft picks that year. I mean, they had a <laughs> lot of late round draft picks, and every time they were on the clock, I'm thinking maybe this is my time. They told me I was, you know, right around that late sixth to the seventh. They had, I think, two sixth and two seventh, and never heard my my name called, and uh, you know, ended up playing longer than almost all of, of those draft picks that the Bears brought in, which uh, which is something that I always kind of hang my hat on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I mean, like like I was trying to say to to your one point, you know, it takes grit definitely to last in the NFL. And, you know, somebody who gets drafted, you know, a young kid who doesn't quite understand what he's getting, you know, maybe he kind of takes that for granted compared to, say, you going in undrafted with probably a massive chip on your shoulder just ready to prove something. Yeah, and, and with nothing to lose, I, I always told myself, you know, if I if I didn't make it in the NFL, if I just wasn't good enough, like that's something that I can accept. Like I knew I was, you know, marginally athletically talented enough to make it, uh, but yeah, I knew I had some are. other traits that, that would help. But if I wasn't good enough, I could accept that, but I, I was never going to accept not making it because somebody gave more effort or somebody knew the playbook better or somebody made less mistakes, all of the things that I could control, I made sure and, and, you know, gave every effort possible, uh, to make it. Cause to me, like, you know, like I said, if I would have gotten cut, if I wasn't good enough, I can accept that. But looking back and having regret for not pushing more or trying more, giving more effort, that was something that I knew would, would haunt me forever. Yeah, and I mean, I I had a coach in high school who said something very similar to me. He said, uh, you know, once it's over, don't look back. You know, just always look forward. Always try to, uh, you know, continue with life regardless of what you do. But, you know, I'm I'm looking here at your college stats as a senior, and, you know, I'm honestly stunned looking back that you didn't get drafted. Uh, 106 tackles, five interceptions, one of them being returned for a touchdown. And then, like – were you are were, are you like an outside linebacker in your other life because you had four sacks and two forced fumbles to go along with that? Like you <laughs> well, played we, out of your mind. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I had some of my best games against you know some legit competition. Went to Wisconsin, you know, in '01 we went up there and, and and beat Wisconsin, and it was a big win for us. Got us on the cover of Sports Illustrated back then. Um, well, that probably and means it, I hated you for a week. Oh, I'm 100%. I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. And, and we went up there in 02. It was actually the first night game in the history of Camp uh, Camp Randall Stadium, which was which was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, uh, Camp but, Randall's a great field. Oh, man, so awesome. And, you know, you know, up in Wisconsin, between the third and fourth quarter, they play jump around, right? And the whole student section yep. goes nuts. Well, my junior year, we didn't experience that because, I mean, we stunned Wisconsin. They were up going into halftime. Bernard Berrien takes the opening kickoff back to the house for us, and then we get a pick on the third play of the second half and put it in for a touchdown and silence. I mean, we could talk like this on the sideline. <laughs> and wow. so the 2 year, it was, it, was, it was live, and it was a good game. Uh, I think we lost 23-21 or 22-20, something like that. But I had a good game, forced to fumble. I think I had nine or ten tackles. Kind of put me on the map. You know, we played Oregon State and Steven Jackson. I think I had 13 tackles. So, yeah, you know, when we played wow. uh, when we played kind of that, you know, Power 5 now competition, I, I felt like I had my, my best games. And I had a couple guys fighting 40, Mar Marty Barrett, who 
was a longtime scout with the Bears, um, just won a Super Bowl with the Eagles as, as part of their pro personnel department. Loved me, oh, wanted no to draft me, told the Bears, you know, as much. And, uh, you know, they felt differently, um, but, but kind of proved him right with my career. And, and Kevin Coyle, my DB coach in Cincinnati, was on the table trying to get me drafted in Cincy. And, and it just didn't happen. Um, you know, sometimes things line up, just like tr- trying out in high school and running a four or six, which really was a four nine, and <laughs> and, and being undrafted in Chicago. You know, kind of getting into a situation where there weren't a lot of veteran special teams safeties who were there, and and I kind of found a niche and hung around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's what was your first impressions of uh, the NFL life? Like once once you signed that contract with the Bears, like what? What's your first few days? Like, how, how are you really accepting the NFL lifestyle? Well, it, it's crazy because, you know, guys who are signed as, or you know, draft picks or guys who are signed as, as free agents, undrafted yeah. free agents, you know, you get a contract. So we all know in the NFL the contracts aren't guaranteed, so they don't really mean anything and get cut at any time. It um, essentially means you get to show up to OTAs. They, Exactly. You, you hit, the, hit the nail on the head. You know, but I was not signed as an undrafted free agent at first. I actually signed a mini camp uh, tryout. So this was all I was I was guaranteed from the Bears. We'll fly you out. Oh, wow. We'll put you up. You'll you know two practices Friday, two practices Saturday, one practice Sunday. If you get hurt, it's on you. So had I gotten hurt, had I torn my ACL, like that liability was on me. I was yeah, a tryout. That- player um, hospital so, bills on you yeah exactly and my agent was like man <laughs> I, I don't know uh, about this and i told him uh, his name was elbert lee i said oh man like i have literally I have nothing to lose i have you know 25 bucks to my name uh <laughs> i thought i was going to get drafted or signed you know a, a a priority free agent deal i had and like i have nothing to lose i go out and get hurt at least i took a shot i'm not sitting on my couch wondering what would have exactly. happened um Exactly. So get to Chicago, they they pick us up in a limo, there's about eight of us undrafted guys stuffed in a limo, <laughs> take us from O'Hare to, to Hallis Hall. Uh and you know, you can imagine as a as a kid from Chowchilla who played small high school football and Fresno State undrafted, you know, my, my eyes were as wide as, as possible. I literally yeah, I mean, had to look up Chicago in the encyclopedia, if you can believe that, in 2003, <laughs> used an encyclopedia because, you know, I was, I'm was i a huge Bulls fan. You know, I'm Michael Jordan all the way, grew up watching. Oh, yeah, love, absolutely. Love Michael Jordan, love those Bulls team. So, I, obviously, I, I know Chicago, but I really didn't know a lot about it, how big it was, where it was located. Like, I had to look those things up. So, you know, get to Chicago and, and just kind of wide-eyed and, all the drafted guys or the, the guys who signed actual contracts are going and getting physicals done. I'm just kind of sitting there all day on Thursday. <laughs> and then, you know, I can remember walking on the field um, that Friday morning, just starstruck, <laughs> you know, looking at, yeah, uh, I, I you know, it. looking at, at Brian Erlacher and, you know, Rex Grossman, who was a, a who was drafted in my draft class, you know, had watched him at Florida. Oh yeah, he was he was something else in Florida. I, th- I think people kind of forget that. Oh, he was he was a baller, man. I mean, we we thought at the time that that David Carr in in '01 should have been in in that Heisman, uh, you know, top. He was actually 
fifth in the Heisman voting, not invited to New York. So we were kind of bitter about that. You know, Rex yeah, got oh. to go as a sophomore, but Rex balled. You know, so yeah, definitely. You know, seeing I mean, these guys was, you, you watch on TV was, and yeah, go ahead. yeah, just was uh, it was a lot. It was a lot to take in. Uh, you know, coming from coming from Fresno State. Yeah. So um. So uh, you already know I'm gonna ask this, but uh, first impressions of Brian Urlacher. You know, the first time you get to meet him, uh, is is was he intense? Was he nice? Like I feel like I feel like now that he's been retired, he kind of he talks a little bit more, but he kinda, he used to come off as that guy watching him as a kid that uh, he just kind of looked at you and maybe grunted every once in a while. <laughs> that's funny because that's exactly how he does look, um, but. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of interaction with him early, you know, like that first mini camp. Um, but he was, you know, the unquestioned leader of that defense and ran the show. Um, what was crazy, well, you know, when I was at Fresno State in 98, he was actually at New Mexico. Um, so we watched film. He was a punt returner and a safety, you know. So I watched this guy on film and I then I saw him. I never him knew he was a punt returner. Yeah, wow. he was a punt returner. I can remember watching film with – John Baxter, who's now the USC special teams coach, like, we are not going to let this dude return punts on us. <laughs> like, we shut down R.W. McCorders last year. We're shutting Brian Urlacher down. He was just a big guy who was fast. Um, but, yeah, return punts, I mean, an exceptional athlete was all over the field. But when I saw him in person, I was like, this dude is huge. You know, he's, he's legitimately <laughs> 6'4", and he doesn't look – that big but you know he's 260 pounds and can fly um so just i was i was struck by just how athletic brian was lack was for how big he was um but he i mean for as intense as he looked and for as intense as he was on the field i mean there was nobody more intense than brian Erlacher on the football field during a game oh, but outside of that he was the he was the coolest dude you know the coolest superstar that that I ever met. I mean, love to have a good time, always joking, always, you know, keeping it light, always in a good mood, always smiling and laughing. I mean, that's literally who he was. Like we would handle our business and we would have a good time. Um, you know, that that was Brian Erlacher. And we I can't count how many times I was at his house playing poker, you know, playing paintball we'd all go play paintball at his house in the <laughs> off season i mean you know that's the type of dude that he was he'd have 35 paintball guns and an unlimited supply of paintballs for us to play paintball and goggles and helmets and you know that's that's who brian erlacher was and is um but when yeah the first time i saw him i thought man i can't believe i'm on the same field as brian erlacher right now and i can't believe i'm walking on the same field as you know, David Terrell, who I just watched at, at Michigan, you know, the year before yeah. ball out and, and Ted Washington, who looked like a mountain, you know, is walking on the same foot as these guys. Mike Brown, who I just watched last year, you know, return two interceptions for back to back wins, you know, to, to ice the game, walk off, pick sixes. So, yeah, it was uh, it was uh, a pretty cool, but it was. Yeah, it was a I'm lot sure. to take in. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure it was nerve wracking. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, uh, yeah, go ahead. I just, I just, uh, I mean, I, I like that you brought up Mike Brown because he was just from Nebraska to Chicago, just absolutely just outstanding anytime he was on the field. Like it, it, it bothers me when I think about like what injuries did to his career. Cause he just, I mean, watching it from the outside, looking in, it was, he was incredible. Yeah. And he, that's how it was from the inside too, you know? 
there are those guys who, you know, and, and Mike was a really good athlete. Don't get me wrong, but there are those guys who just they, they always seem to be in the right place at the right time. And that was Mike Brown, and it didn't just happen. He wasn't just lucky. Like the dude prepared, he understood football, you know, just about as good as any defensive back that I was ever around. And that's why he was always in position. And he would take chances and he would make plays, but the chances he took were because he studied, you know, what an offense was trying to do and knew, you know, okay, if this play comes, I'm taking a chance and I'm going to try to pick a ball off. And that's what he would do. And he made a ton of plays. He was the leader in that secondary for us, you know, my whole time in Chicago. And you're right. It's unfortunate that injuries, you know, kind of got the best of him because you know, that Super Bowl run we had, you know, he goes down that Monday night game in Arizona. And, you know, I don't think we, we ever really recovered from that. We kind of struggled as a secondary, losing him just as his voice on the field. I mean, he was the man to get everything lined up for us and, you know, we, we we lost a little bit that I don't think we ever got back that season. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I always saw from him, I mean, besides, besides, you know, on camera, you know, like you said, he was always kind of lining people up, you know, so he, his mouth was always moving. So it always looked like he was talking. <laughs> so, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you can attest to that. But, you know, like you said, always being in the right place at the right time, just instincts is what I always saw with this guy. Very instinctual player. Yeah, yeah, very instinctual and and you know a lot of that like I said a lot of that came down to his understanding of of football. It's very hard in the NFL <laughs> to uh you know to get by on on instincts alone or you know I think this is coming so I'm going to do this. Like Troy Polamalu is probably a prime example of a guy who just athletically was a freak and understood what teams were trying to do, and he would take chances and he would make big-time plays. Mike Brown was the same way. You know, he put himself in position all the time and knew how an offense was going to try to attack him, and that's why he was always there, making big hits, forcing fumbles, picking balls off. He he was, I mean, the, the ultimate example of preparation, you know, equals big-time performance. So uh, just uh... – now, moving on a little bit, um, give me your experience of your first uh, NFL training camp. You know, I mean, everybody sees it on hard knocks. Um, you know, I don't know for sure, but uh, me personally, I think they maybe tone it down just a little bit for the cameras. I mean, can you test that at all? Like, how was your first training camp? Yeah, I mean, well, it's different now. <laughs> Back in 03, <laughs> you know, the, there was, you know, two-a-days, full pads, you know, full tackle, you know, back to back two a days. I mean, it was, it was a grind. It's, it's much less that those guys have to go through now. Um, but that, that first training camp, you know, when it was in Bourbonnais, which is in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, uh, yep. didn't understand that Chicago was in the Midwest until took a bus trip from Chicago to Bourbonnais. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. This is the Midwest. I get it now, but, but go down there and, and it's kind of like you're, um, you know, taken out of civilization for, you know, three weeks. And that's, that's kind of how I approached that rookie training camp was, I, I don't care about anything other than football for three straight weeks. That's my sole focus. I'm here in a dorm room, no TV, no radio, no computer, nothing but me and a playbook and, and trying to, to make a team. Um, and that's, that was my approach, that training camp. And it was, you know, I was tested a lot because 
you know, I was basically the, the sixth, actually I got there as the seventh safety. Um, you know, Todd Johnson, who's a great friend of mine was drafted in the fourth round, you know, in 2003, Julius Curry, a safety from Michigan, who was a, a punt returner, a really good athlete. Uh, they signed him as an undrafted free agent. He was kind of the sixth safety and I was kind of number seven. Uh, so got to training camp, didn't get a lot of reps early. Um, and you know, about a weekend kind of took Julius's spot and, and just, you know, continued to every chance I got, whether it was special teams, whether it was on the scout punt team, scout kickoff return, every chance I had to get on film, I was going to try and make somebody notice me when I was on film. And and that's kind of how I approached that training camp. Um, you know, just wanted to do everything I could to, to make the team, whether it was going to happen or not because of numbers or whatever, you know, it, it was something I couldn't control, but I was going to make sure when I had a chance to, to show up on film that, that I was going to show up on film. So, um, preseason games going through training camp, how much, how much stock do coaches really put into that? Cause there's, you know, there's been a lot of talk over, you know, the past few years that, you know, maybe preseason games take away from the regular season product, which I don't buy. I think preseason games are a good way to really see what you have, especially, you know, depth wise, you know, see what you, see what you have with guys, you know, like you that they signed undrafted. Um, how much stock did they really put into the preseason games? Like as the coaches? Well, <clears throat> you know, it's funny cause it kind of works like this, you know, the first preseason game, <clears throat> excuse me, starters get about a series or two. You know, second preseason game, maybe a quarter, quarter and a half. Third preseason game is the big one where, you know, usually starters will play that first half and then come back for one series in the second half. And then the fourth preseason yeah. game is guys like me trying to trying to make a roster. <laughs> um, but there are guys like me, you know, that, that first training camp. Game number one, I'm standing on the sideline for three quarters, not one single rep on the field, finally get a punt team rep start of the fourth quarter and then play the whole fourth quarter on defense. And I ended up with four tackles and, you know, I really like walking into film the next day, Vance Bedford, who was our DB coach was like, Cam, uh, like you showed up last night, you know? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I thought, I thought I played well, but you know, I had no idea um, that it had been a topic of conversation with the whole coaching staff. So we watched the film and, and Vance is like, this is, this is a guy who shows up when the lights are on. And, you know, I was flying around, I was all over the place. And, uh, yeah. unfortunately for Todd, that same, you know, the first rep I was on punt team, Todd was on punt team as well and ended up getting a blindside block and broke his jaw. So Ooh. Todd broke his jaw, which really gave me honestly the the opportunity to make the team. So immediately I'm, you know, backup free safety to Mike Brown. I'm getting tons of reps in practice. I start on every special team, you know, that next week, I think it was against Denver uh, in, in that second preseason game, have another great performance, make the opening t tackle on kickoff, you know, just took that opportunity that, that, you know, presented itself because Todd got injured and took advantage. Um, third preseason game, same thing, had a great game. Actually, the, the fourth preseason game was at New England. And I can remember, you know, I'm in my suit getting ready to get on the bus, and Jerry Angelo pulls me in one of the trainer's rooms, um, who was our GM at the time, and, and told me, Cam, 
man, you've had a great camp. We love everything that you've done, but we're, we don't have a room for you on the roster. Like we want to sign you to the practice squad if nobody claims you. Um, but that's, you know, it's just a numbers thing right now. So getting on the bus and getting on the plane to go to New England, I'm thinking, man, I've done everything I could possibly do to make this team and it's not going to work out. Well, I have one more opportunity against the Patriots to, to try and, and catch the attention of one of the 31 other teams because I want to play football and, right, you know, played right. basically the whole game. You know, I think I had 11 or 12 tackles, took a fumble back for a touchdown um, and never got a call from the Bears that I was being released. So, you know, did <laughs> enough that last preseason game to, to stick on the roster. So, you know, it's it's not important to some guys. When I went down to Miami, you know, I think I played in two preseason games and, and that was it because I was pretty established. But for a lot of guys and for a lot of organizations kind of rounding out the bottom of that roster, the, the preseason is an important piece for that. Yeah, it's it, it sounds like Jerry was just trying to get something out of you. I mean, <laughs> it, it sounds like something he would do, though, from what I've heard. Well, you know, I, I, I had talking to some of the uh, spoken to some of the pro personnel guys <clears throat> leading up to that. And they were kind of talking about practice squad stuff and how it works. And, you know, like if somebody offers you a deal, <clears throat> you know, we can offer you rookie, basically rookie money to be on the practice squad. So you'll make exactly the same as rookie minimum. But, you know, you'll be on the practice squad. So I, yeah. I do think it was con- it was conversations, you know, about me being a practice squad guy. And even after the first regular season game with the Niners, um, you know, I spoke to Jerry again and, and he said, look, there's about four or five guys, you know, you're one of them who are right around the bottom of that roster and things might happen. We might lose two offensive linemen. We might lose two defensive linemen. Like we might just have to make roster moves and, you know, you might be one of those guys. I just want you to know, we really, we value what you bring. We think you can develop into a really good player, but that just might be the, you know, something that pops up. Luckily, I kind of established myself as a special teams guy and I was valuable enough to, to stick around and really stuck around for four years in Chicago because of that role. Yeah, that's it's really cool that he would keep you updated with a lot of that. You know, a lot of the a lot of GMs these days don't even, you know, give you that uh give you that opportunity to really know your place on a roster. But um anyway, um so let's say about midway through your first rookie season, um, what's the culture in the locker room? Um, obviously, Dick Duran had his big year in 2001, and, you know, had kind of was starting to trail off a little bit in 2002, 2003, you know, for whatever reason. I, you know, like, I don't really know Dick or anything like that. But uh, what was the culture in the locker room? What was kind of the overall thought of everything, or did you not really have a part of that? Um. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that first season for me was just kind of getting acclimated to the NFL. And, and I actually got hurt early. I tore my meniscus. I had to uh, uh, get it cleaned up. So I missed a, a couple weeks. Actually, I only missed one game. It was the, the Packers um, Monday uh, night game opening new Soldier Field was, was the game that I missed. But, but my, I had surgery. My, my dad was actually at that game. Oh, man, it was it wasn't that was an awesome environment, man. It was so <laughs> cool to be a part of something like that. And I see pictures every once in a while, you know, like oh, first game, you know, at Soldier Field. I don't remember it was September twenty something, two thousand three. Um, but I was actually on the sideline on crutches because <laughs> I had my meniscus cleaned up. So I was just I was just fighting, and and that whole year for me was, you know rehab from that meniscus and, and play a game on Sunday and then really couldn't practice until Friday. 
practice Friday and then and play on Sunday and then really in the training room the whole time. So it was just trying to trying to keep myself healthy and and be a productive part of the team. So you know I really didn't um, understand the, the the culture of of that Bears team. Dick was awesome. You know Dick Duran was a, a great coach. Yeah, he's um, a very well liked guy around the league. Oh man, he's he's awesome. He's as genuine of a of a person as you'll ever meet. You know, yell yell educated, so a little bit smarter than the rest of the room, but you know, <laughs> never never showed off with it, never made you feel like, you know, your your intelligence was inferior or anything. And uh just a real real quick story. I can remember standing in line waiting to get lunch and, and Alex Brown and I were talking and <laughs> He said something like, um, you know, oh, he, he does that good, you know. And I said, I don't think it's he does that good. It's he does that well. And he's like, nah, it's he does that good. So Dick was standing in front of us. So I say, Coach, would you say, you know, he did that well or would you say he did that good? And and Dick said, oh, he did that just fine. Thank you. You know, just that kind of dry sense of humor, <laughs> not, not really trying to show off but making everybody feel like, you know, uh, you know, comfortable. He, that's the kind of dude he was. And I remember, you know, the day after our last game, you know, it was out in the media, you know, he had been fired and yeah. our last Chicago game was, has a good way of leaking that stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we heard it in the locker room after the game and we, we all kind of knew that that was kind of the direction it was going to move in. And Dick was pretty, yeah. you know, upfront with us, but that last game that season was in Kansas city and, and Anthony Thomas was late getting on the plane and he walked in, in this probably, $15,000 chinchilla fur coat, oh, right? So we're all roasting yeah. <laughs> a train when he's walking on, on the plane. But Dick walks in the I'm next just, day. I got the image in my head now. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, man, it was epic. We were like, what, bro? First, you're 30 minutes late. And you're rocking this $15,000 fur coat. <laughs> so Dick walks in, uh. and the first thing he says to us is, I wanted to walk in with Train's chinchilla on, but he didn't bring it today. So, <laughs> so that you know, that's the that's the type of attitude he, he had, and and you know, he just kind of said like, "This happens in this business. You get fired. You know, you don't win, you get fired. We all know that. It's it's a part of the NFL, and you know, unfortunately, we didn't do enough to to get it done. But I have nothing but great respect and, and admiration for for Dick. I mean, he gave me my first shot as an as an NFL player. He believed in me. Yeah enough to keep me on that roster um and uh, you know that that one year with him was it was it was a great year yeah absolutely um you know there have been a lot of former bears that have come out in support of dick duran you know just a very well liked guy around the league um when he was in buffalo for a little bit all the players raved about him so i mean consummate professional definitely i, I feel like that gets lost a lot in bears history but yeah it, so, it does um, you know the, the the standard is high in chicago though you know you have uh, a lot of, you know, I start with George Hallis himself, uh, you know, as far as, as great all-time coaches and Mike Dicka, who won the only Super Bowl the Bears have won, even though they have nine NFL championships, only one Super Bowl. Yeah. You know, so there, I mean, there's a lot of history with Bears coaches and, you know, Dick's there, then Lovey comes and takes us to the Super Bowl and, and, and people kind of gloss over those, those Dick Duran years, unfortunately, because, you know, he, he was an excellent football coach. Absolutely. Um, one of the first years I really got into football was that 2001 team. I, I mean, I I know I'm sounding young here, but that 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 team was incredible. And then you know we make it that far with Jim Miller at quarterback. Um, you know, I, 
and then, you know, just get our hearts ripped out by Philadelphia. But I'm not going to talk about that. Anyway. <laughs> well, I think that's kind um, of, the, you know, that's kind of the story of, of Dick Jaron's years in Chicago, though. You know, there was really no stability at that quarterback position. They draft Rex. Rex gets a little banged up. Wasn't, you know, really planning on playing as a rookie, but signed Cordell Stewart. He gets hurt. Chris Chandler plays. I mean, they brought in Jeff George, Aaron Brooks, like the the list of, of quarterbacks. Oh, who, yeah. Who, who I played with in Chicago, uh, you know, it's long and it's extensive. And I think that is, you know, part of the Dick Geron story, or it should be that, you know, he never was blessed with a, a lot of quarterback stability, at least a quarterback who could get it done at the level necessary to, to be a perennial playoff team. Exactly. And I mean, that's, it's no shot at Jim Miller, but you know, it's just, yeah, not at there, all. Was ne- there was never that stability there. You're a hundred percent correct. You know, and that's that's happened with Bears coaches, you know, across the year. But um, so it's 2004. Um, you hear that Lovey Smith gets hired as the new head coach. Um, does he bring the players in for maybe a meeting, just kind of give you guys like a little bit what he's about? You know, what 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 are you guys' first impressions of Lovey Smith? Well, he actually um, he met with all with all of us one on one. Um, you know, before OTAs. Really? Uh, you know, I got to Chicago maybe a week early and, and went in and met with him in his office, just, just loving him myself. And, and he kind of, you know, told me where he was coming from. And, and I told him, you know, kind of where I was coming from and what I had done and what I thought my role would be. And, you know, luckily I had, uh, you know, Trent Dilfer, who's a Fresno State guy, played in Tampa when Lovey was down there. So, so knew Lovey and, and knew kind of how he operated and kind of let me know. But, you know, Lovey to- told you straight up, you know, what, what he was about and how he wanted to run things. And, um, you know, so he said, he set us all down and had that conversation. And, um, you know, that first year was, it was, I think it was tough for a lot of us. You know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't win a ton. I don't remember what our record was, maybe six and 10 or something, five and 11. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it was five and 11. You're right. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, Lovey wanted to, install his way of operating his systems so it was a grind that first year was a grind uh, and he wanted to get us to a point where we could kind of run things ourselves um, you know looking back uh, and that's why 05 you know 06 we had so much success uh, was because we understood the expectation we understood how to get it done we didn't need him on the field pushing us you know to make sure that we're doing things right we understood what the uh, you know where the bar had been set. So that first year was tough. He came in and, and shook it up quite a bit. And we had long OTA practices. We had long mini camps. I mean, we had long training camp practices. It was a grind. Um, but he knew where we needed to get. And he knew, you know, once we were there, that we would be led by Lack and, and Peanut and Mike Brown and, and Alex Brown and all those guys. So that, that first year, you know, we put in a lot of work to set up, you know, the success that we had in, in 06 and 07. Yeah, I I think that's uh that's really been Lovey's philosophy um over his entire coaching career and um you know I mean coming to Chicago I remember you know I remember pretty vividly you know that first year everybody you know just kind of freaking out with their hair on fire because you know we didn't go win thirty games right away you know and uh, that's you know that's part of the pressure but with a coach like Lovey from what I've seen over his total body of work he likes to he likes to set he like he likes to set up his like groundwork he wants to start from the ground up. He wants to set things up how he wants to, and you know, like he said, like you said, he wants he wants to trust his players enough to where he doesn't have to be there for them to know what they're doing. And 
you know, I, I see it a lot with uh, Illini fans right now. Um, but I think Lovey's building something up there, you know, really strong. It just, it takes time and patience in the NFL can get you really far. And I think that's a lot of what Lovey does. Yeah. And it's tough sometimes. You're right though. You know, Lovey, he comes in and the, the first thing you can do is improve his defense. I mean, <clears throat> he's a defensive guy. He has a very, um, clear system that he runs and he has personnel pieces that have to fit each position on that defense. So he comes in, he gets the pieces in that can, that can play his defense the way he wants it run. And then he works on the other side of the ball. I mean, that was the blueprint that worked in Chicago. That was a blueprint that was working in Tampa after they got Jameis Winston, you know, going into year two and they, and they fire him, which is absolutely insane. I know that going into year three. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. You know, that absolutely blew me away because, you know, it's setting the groundwork. And, you know, you look at you look at where Tampa Bay is now or where they've gone since, and I can only imagine where they'd be right now if they still had Lovey. Yeah, they had the perfect combo, Dirk Cutter. You know, and that's, what, that's why they fired Lovey. They didn't want to lose Dirk Cutter after what he had done with Jameis Winston as a rookie. So, you know, part of me understands that, but, like, Lovey is the figurehead at the top of all of it, and his philosophies rain down and 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 allow his assistants to to develop guys. You know, uh, let Dirk Cutter be your OC, develop Jameis Winston, and and have success that way. While Lovey continues to to fine tune that defense, and they were in a position to do that. Um, and he's trying to do the same thing in in you know Champaign. I mean, there are people out in California <clears throat> talk about you know the the recruiting efforts of of Illinois coming out to California, getting some California kids out there. Hardy Nickerson's out here all the time recruiting. You know, he's made that type of an impact. That is a hard place to win when you have to, you know, play Michigan state and Wisconsin and Ohio state and and Penn state. You know, I mean, the, the, the big 10 is a murderer's row. So as you said, um, lovey kind of lets his coordinators kind of do his own thing. Um, how, how did, uh, how was it working with Ron Rivera? Uh, Ron was awesome, man. Uh, Chico, <laughs> he was, uh, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> it's crazy because after that Super Bowl run, I think he had eight or nine, you know, head coaching interviews and and didn't receive one. And, um, you know, we we ran Lovey's system in Chicago, cover two, you know, that Tampa two with Lack being the middle run through yeah. guy, hard, hard reroute corners. That completely um, threw off the NFL for a couple years there. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, when you have, Four, I mean, the, the key is when you have four guys who can get pressure, <clears throat> it makes that whole system work. You know, everybody yeah. can sit and look at the quarterback and the ball comes out quick. We rally and tackle and get off the field. But, you know, um, Ron did an, an excellent job of, of coordinating that defense. <clears throat> and I thought he would be a head coach before he got the, the Panthers job. But for whatever reason, didn't work out. You know, um, Lovey was pretty sure he was going to get a head coaching job. So he moved on and. <laughs> Promoted Bob Babbage to be defensive coordinator, um, but I, I thought Ron was ready then to be a head coach, and I think he's proven that, you know, with what he's done with the Panthers. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, kind of navigating the the minefield of, you know, having a quarterback like Cam Newton, who's such a superstar and is is so heavily scrutinized, or you know, gets so much uh, admiration or or. Um, you know, credit when they win and, and really gets, the, gets the, the downside of being a quarterback when they lose. I think Ron yeah, does an excellent job of, of being a defensive guy, 
trying to get pieces around uh, Cam to maximize his talent and um, the while the whole time playing very solid defense, you know, his really his whole tenure in Carolina and and I was pulling for him in that Super Bowl that Von Miller just totally <laughs> took over. But yeah. you know, he's 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 a quality person. He's gonna be, you know, a really good head coach for a long time in the NFL. Yeah, I I think probably my favorite thing he does, I mean, besides what he's done with Luke Keekley, which I saw coming out of college, him being him being an absolute star, and I couldn't imagine him going to any better of a coach than Ron Rivera. Right. But but um I like like you said, I like how he handles Cam. He allows Cam to, you know, dictate what they do on offense. Um, you know, and he defends him in the media. He's you know, he's done that multiple times. I feel like Cam really gets a bad rap to a lot of people. Um and you know, he he does he like I think he goes at Cam right when he struggles, you know. He doesn't just throw him under the bus in the media like there are head coaches that do to their quarterbacks, you know, trying to save their own ass or make it seem like they're doing a great job. You know, he, he does it constructively, you know, and I feel like that's something he kind of picked up from Lovey because Lovey was a very in-house kind of guy, and I just – I really, really like what he's doing out there in Carolina. And you're right, like any any fan in Chicago who is paying attention – for all for that Super Bowl run and everything, new Ron Rivera should have been a head coach a long time ago. Yeah, and you know he gets it. He's a player. He he played on the '85 Bears. You know he <laughs> yeah he, he, he understands it. it. He he knows what it's like to be in those situations, and I think that that just you know helps him understand you know how to operate with someone like uh, Cam Newton. I think I think he he does such a great job, and I, I'm sure they have such a great relationship. He believes in Cam. He lets Cam Newton be Cam Newton. And when he needs to address something, he addresses it with Cam Newton. He doesn't address it through the media. He addresses exactly. it face-to-face. And I think that's why they've had so much success as a tandem. Yeah, and I th- I think he's really helped Cam, like, stop himself from talking to the media, too. Because Cam's a very expressive guy. Mm-hmm. But if you really listen to his press conferences, he's not giving anybody anything to work with. Right, yeah, he's and, and and I think he's he's matured in in that way, and he understands, you know, the spotlight that's on him. One wrong comment, and it's a story for a week. You know, there are yeah. not a lot of players in the NFL that that are are covered that way, and, and Cam is one of them. And if he, something happens, it takes on kind of a life of its own. And I think they've done a good job in Carolina of understanding that, allowing Cam Newton to still be himself, but. To, to understand the implications of some of the things that he he may do and what the consequences of those may be. So um, I'm just going to jump straight to um, getting getting to the uh, Super Bowl run. Um, obviously, you know the games. Were, you know the entire season was amazing. Um, really, one game in the regular season I kind of want to touch on. I think you already know what I'm about to say, <laughs> but what happened down there in Arizona, like? Still, like, I, I rewatched the full game on YouTube the other day, and it still absolutely blows my mind what happened. Yeah, you know, we were rolling. I I, I think we were 8-0, maybe 7-0 or 8-0 at that you're, point. You were, you were around that area. I, I, I yeah. remember watching the yeah. game as it happened. but So, you know, I mean, we're, we're rolling. I mean, we're playing great defense. Rex is balling. Our offense is putting up great numbers. We're scoring points. And then <clears throat> we get to that Monday night game, and nothing's working you know we're turning the ball over on offense we're getting carved up defensively uh just everything that we had done up to that point um wasn't working I think that was the first time 
we all realize like okay we're, we're every game we're getting everybody's best shot like it's, it doesn't really matter what you see on film because they're going to be better than that when they play us because the target exactly. the target's on our back you know we had not been that team yet <clears throat> so Arizona they were ready to go and I think it was 20 to 3 maybe at halftime um yeah I believe it was some it was somewhere we, on that part we we never wavered. What what was good about that that group on defense was, you know, and 05 is a prime example. I don't know how many quarterbacks started for us in 05, but Rex goes down, Kyle Orton starts. Um I think I think you know, Car- uh Kyle started about 15 of those games that yeah, year. Yeah, okay, so sorry. Go back to 04. Go back to 04 where <laughs> then Rex gets hurt and you know, we Craig Krenzel and Jonathan, Jonathan Quinn, Quinn and maybe <laughs> oh, maybe one other. But, but you know, so as a defense, our whole goal was <clears throat> we don't care what the offense does. We have to do enough to win as a unit. And that's how we always approached every game, whether our offense was balling like they were in 06 or, you know, Kyle was throwing for like 140 yards in 05. <clears throat> We wanted to do enough on our end to win. And that's the mentality that we had my entire tenure in Chicago. And that's why we were able to come back and win that game in, in Arizona without an offensive touchdown. You know, yeah. um, Lack gets the strip. Peanut takes it to the house. I think Mark Anderson gets the strip sack of Leinert. Mike Brown takes it to the house. And then mm-hmm. Devin, with that punt return to end it all. But we just, we we believed in ourselves so much that we could go out and make enough plays to win because we had done it. You know, we went down to Tennessee, I think it was 05 or 04 maybe, uh, didn't score an offensive touchdown, but got an RW punt return, and Mike Haynes took a pick to the house, and we ended it with a safety in overtime. Like, we had won games with just defense and special teams, and that was our mentality that night. We have to do everything defensively and on special teams to win this game. And we came up with, with big plays to make that happen. The, the craziest part about that whole game, Mike Brown goes down, you know, <clears throat> I think in the third that, quarter. That was after he scored the touchdown, wasn't it? Right, after right after he scored the touchdown. So maybe it was even the fourth quarter. But like we're all, as a secondary, we're all playing. Devin's playing nickel, you know. I'm playing free. <laughs> Todd's playing strong. You know, Chris Harris was down, so he was hurt. A lot of people uh, forget Devin even ever played in the secondary. Yeah, yeah. He was his rookie year. He was a corner. And then they're like, uh, we got to get this dude the ball more. So let's move him <laughs> over to offense. Exactly. But we go into the locker room. Mike Brown's pumped. You know, I mean, you could tell he's devastated because he's hurt for real. But he's yeah. pumped. We win this game. And he was watching the game in the locker room. So literally, we are in the locker room celebrating. And we hear dennis green's rant you know the oh bears are who we thought they were we we listened to it live in the locker room <laughs> and i mean we we lost it i i remember coming off the field though after that game like we're we're destined to do some great things this year like we're Definitely. we're we're getting to the super bowl we're winning the super bowl man this is a special group like there's nothing nothing can stop us that's that, that actually kills one of my other questions because i was going to ask that moment that you realized you were going to win the super bowl but hey that's you know, that's the mentality you got to have. And, you know, like you said, there's been so many Chicago teams, especially in this era, that just won games with their defense. And it was it was something else to watch. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we felt that we were, you know, one of the better teams. I mean, to, to this day, 
if if Mike Brown and Tommy Harris don't get hurt, like we're I'm wearing a Super Bowl ring right now. Absolutely, you know, I'm I'm Super Bowl champion. You know, Cameron Worrell, but you know they they go down, and you know Tommy was oh man, I don't, I don't think I can go into how big of a piece he was to that defense that year because as a three, I mean just Warren Sapp, that's what he was. He was Warren Sapp, a pressure three technique who disrupted everything and offense wanted to do and and we were missing that in the Super Bowl that coupled with you know Daniel Manning unfortunately busts the coverage early uh oh. and, and Rex threw a pick six I mean that's that's kind of that's kind of what the game came down to um but yeah. you know I, I I'll say for till till the day I'm, I'm I'm buried in the ground if Tommy Harris was healthy for that Super Bowl we we are Super Bowl champions uh I 100% agree with you I uh actually funny story um as a kid, I remember watching the NFL draft. I was watching it for my dad because my dad was on his way home from you know somewhere, and um, I see we draft Tommy Harris. You know, I, I I'm a kid. I don't quite understand quite who he is, but I see this highlight of his speed coming off the line and just running through somebody, and I'm just like I'm like wow. Like I don't even care what this guy did. He looks amazing. He is going to be incredible. And my dad walks through the door. And he asked me who he drafted, and I forgot Tommy's name. And I'm like, he's this guy that does this. And I went in a three-point stance, tried flying out as fast as I possibly could, and just straight nose dive into the ground. <laughs> so, just yeah. Pure, pure excitement. Oh, I was I was so stoked. And, you know, he did, he did not disappoint in Chicago. I always loved Tommy Harris. He was yeah. He was just a physical monster. For what for what he was, you know. Yeah, he. I mean, he fit. He fit exactly what Lovey wanted out of a three technique. Really, out of all defensive linemen, get penetration, hit a gap, and get in the backfield and disrupt everything. And and Tommy was. I mean, he was he was Warren Sapp. You know that Warren Sapp was a big piece of that Tampa defense, and Absolutely. Tommy was was on the same path. And that that '06 year, I mean, <clears throat> Lack was the defensive player of the year, and and I don't think there was a question about that. But you know, Tommy Harris was was probably number two because of the way he was able to disrupt things. And, and we, when he went down, you know, just like when, when Mike went down, we just, those are guys that you, you can't replace. You just can't replace what they brought on the field. And, and, and that's, you know, that's unfortunately what we had to roll with in the playoffs. So you're at, you're in Chicago, you're playing Seattle in the uh, divisional playoffs, I believe in that, in one game you go from, Rex Grossman tossing about an 80-yard touchdown Bernard Berrien, which I'm sure you guys got very used to seeing over the course of the mm-hmm. year. And then you go to a tie game, the last few seconds, Robbie Gold's up to kick. What what are the emotions on that sideline? <clears throat> that was a that was a battle, you know. Uh I think that was one year removed, right, from Seattle playing in the Super Bowl and losing to um the Steelers. So, you know, th- there's yeah. just there was a the difference. Yeah, like going back to to 05, we played the Panthers. We have a home game in the in the, oh. the 06 playoffs, right? But Carolina was battle tested. Like they were a Super Bowl team. There there is an experience and I think an understanding of playoff football that you only get when you participate in playoff football and that's what the Seahawks were, man. They had a championship pedigree and they came in and tested everything, you know, that that we we did, but you know, you know, Robbie was as solid as anybody, and we had the ultimate 
faith that Robbie was going to nail that field goal. And, and he's gone on to be one of the most accurate kickers in NFL history. But Absolutely. I mean, we knew we, we believed in him. He was part of us. Um, you know, we, Robbie was a good athlete. We used to play basketball in the off season. I mean, he can handle his own, but you know, he, he was not a lot of kickers are part of, of the culture. And Robbie was a part of the culture. And we knew as soon as we put him in that position, the game was over. Yeah. That, I mean, definitely, he was embraced in Chicago with open arms, and I th- I think he hit a spot somewhere in that season where he hit like 24 kicks in a row. So, I mean, while while all while all his fans are on like the edge of our seats, we all kind of have this thought in our mind, like, oh yeah, Robbie's gonna knock this right. and work around the next round. <laughs> Unfazed, nothing ever ever phases him. And, it, and as hard as it might be for Bears fans to hear, I was ecstatic for him last year. When he went to Soldier Field, went back you know, to Soldier Field, and and went five for five, including the game winner, man, I just I couldn't as I could not uh, root against my guy because you know the the, the Bears shipped him off, which, which is what happens to everybody, you know, no hard yeah. feelings, but you get a chance to come back and and you know shove it up your former teammate or your former teams, you know what, and you do that, man, props. I, I was I was happy for him that day. I mean, absolutely, you know, I I. I watched every game this past season. You know, a lot of people would call me crazy for that. But, you know, that San Francisco game, you know, in 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 retrospect of, like, where we were in the season, everything like that, watching Robbie do that was just – it was incredible. And, you know, I, I remember going on Facebook after the game, seeing a bunch of pissed-off Bears fans and everything like that, or Packer fans heckling us. And it's like, dude, he's going to be – he's going to be one of the best Chicago, you know, Chicago Bears kickers of all time. He yeah. did it, so we got to watch him do it at Soldier Field again. So you know what, I I appreciate getting to watch something like that because Robbie has been an amazing kicker in this league for a long time. Yeah, and I I love what he's done. He did with the community while he's here as well. So now going to the Saints game, you got a motivated Drew Brees who everybody thought was going to have you know was never going to be the same. You got this, you know, cocky rookie in Reggie Bush who thinks he's just going to set the NFL on fire. And uh, you guys come out completely prepared. You know, what What are your thoughts once the clock hits zero and you guys are on your way to Miami? Man, I mean, one of the, one of the I mean, greatest nights of my, of my life. I mean, I've had all my family there, my wife's family. I mean, it was it was awesome. Um, yeah, we were, we, we were prepared, man. We, we knew, I, I don't want to say we were overconfident, but we knew, you know, if this, if that game had been in New Orleans, it would have been a different test, you know, on turf, indoors, that system that they run is so precise and is so, you know, based on timing and, and Drew Brees and his receivers, you know, being on the same page. We knew coming up to Soldier Field in January, going to be cold, the Field was going to be crap. We knew that they were not going to be able to to execute, you know, the way they normally do. Um, but and we knew we knew what they were going to how they were going to attack us. The, the good thing about you know Lovey's cover two is, you know, we really didn't spend a ton of time uh, learning, you know, or studying how an offense was going to attack us because there are only certain things or areas you can attack when you're playing cover two and when you're playing, you know, uh, basically single high safety, whether it's cover three, a pressure or, you know, man free. So yeah. we knew we were, we were going to get attacked. We knew how they were going to attack us. We knew they were going to use Reggie Bush as a receiver. They were going to try to motion him out and get him isolated on a linebacker or a safety. If we were in man coverage, 
so we knew coming in, we, we were extremely confident. And, you know, I can remember that. I think it was an 85-yard touchdown that Reggie Bush caught, motioned him out, um, you know, caught a pass, cut it back, went to the end zone, did a flip into the end zone, right? Right, right in oh, front yeah. of Oh, yeah, I'll never forget that flip. Right, and, and it was over after that. It was almost like Jason Tatum dunking on LeBron the other night. The Cavs just kind of, or LeBron just kind of took over. Yep. When Reggie Bush flipped into the end zone, I, I don't think, you know, Lack was as intense as any player on the football field as I've, I've ever played with or played against. Never saw him as angry as he was after that. I mean, he was like, we're running these dudes off the field now. None of that's going to happen again. And and we did. I mean, we, we, we blew him out. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I remember in the second half, Thomas, I think Thomas Jones takes it into the end zone and, and really, really ices it. Snow's starting to fall. I mean, it's like a, a script out of a movie, right? You, you clinch your way to the Super Bowl. It starts snowing. I mean, Soldier Field is going nuts. Um, yeah, I, I think, I, uh, I think Bernard was throwing up, uh, snow in the air after his touchdown. Yeah, right. Too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, one of the, the most fulfilling nights as a, as a football player and as a professional, you know, that group, that's why that group was so special, man. We we were together, you know, most of us for, you know, that four years since when I got there, 03, you know, all the way through that Super Bowl run. I mean, the nucleus was there. We were all, you know, all in. We brought in Ruben Brown, Lack, you know, Alex Brown, Peanut, Mike Brown. I mean, Lance Briggs. All these guys were, were you know, guys who had been there. You know, myself, Todd Johnson. I mean, you know, a lot of guys who – we came in with we're, we're still there and we we genuinely cared for each other we had a blast off the field we had a blast in the locker room we were always having a good time uh and that showed you know when it came down to getting oh, yeah. you know business handled we we, we believed and, and trusted in each other that we were gonna do enough to get it done and you know that was a truly special season you know one of the the, I mean, obviously by the result, but, you know, just one of the greatest experiences that, that I've ever had, you know, as, as a person because of, of the people that I got to share it with. Yeah, And I, I think that's really like what goes into a great defense. You know, if you look through all of them through history, including your guys's, cause you know, you guys have a special place in my heart for, you know, me being me growing up, basically watching you guys do this. Um, like you said, it's trust and it's buying into the system. And, you know, when you really trust everybody around you, you really legitimately care about those guys and you really buy into the system that your coach is giving you there. You guys you can do some incredible things in this league. Yeah. And we had a blast, man. It was, it was so much fun playing. Cause we were all, we were all, I mean, we knew we were good. We knew, you know, we could handle business and we just went out there and, and balled out. We just went out there and had fun. All right. So you're down in Miami on a Sunday, <laughs> and uh, I, I I have a I have a quote from uh, Anton Bethea, who was on the Colts. He was talking about uh, how the Colts were thinking uh, prior to the kickoff, and th- his exact words are, "We're gonna kick it to him. He's not scoring on us today." Take 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 me through that kick return. Because by the way, I have an awesome picture of you um, as Devin's catching the ball, so there's proof you were on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I we didn't think they were going to kick the ball to Devin, to be honest with you. But we didn't. We thought pooch kick, you know, try to blast it out of the end zone, kick it 
away, whatever. They're not going to kick the ball to Devin Hester. Why would they do that? But, <laughs> you know, I can remember, you know, I, I knew, all right, first kickoff, whether we're running down on kickoff or we're on kickoff return, I wanted to try to try to see all the flash bulbs go off, right? You know, like those iconic shots. Yeah, definitely. All the flash bulbs going off. Well, get on the field, didn't do that at all, <laughs> at all. <laughs> Uh, line up in the whole game on kickoff return. Uh, I had to block uh, Robert Mathis, who was like a 270 pound oh, defensive end, right? So, actually, the first kickoff return, the one that Devin took to the house, he just ran me clean over. I mean, clean <laughs> over. He went down and ran me clean over, but I slowed him up enough where he could make a tackle. So, I actually uh, got the job done. Um, so hey, I get, sometimes I mean, I that's all it takes. Right, I get bowled over, you know, but but try to kind of, you know, get in his way enough to to make sure he doesn't make a tackle. Um, and then I get up and I see Devin <clears throat> have some daylight and then and then break it outside, and I just start running down the field because I'm like, oh man, we just took this to the house. <laughs> get down there and, and celebrate with with Devin. Uh, yeah, say I think man. you were like the first or second guy there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was smashing down the field because. <laughs> You know, I mean, from the moment Devin Hester got to Chicago, we knew he was special. And the first game he played against the Packers, he took punt to the house. And we knew, like, this dude is special. He never practiced because he was too cold. He was bundled up on the sidelines all practice <laughs> long by the heater. And nobody cared because we knew when game time came, the dude was going to get it done. And, you know, I, I have a buddy who to this day laments. He was in Vegas, and I think it was 55-1 to 1 that, that Devin Hester would take. Um, you know, be the first person to score a touchdown or take a kick to the house. And he's like, man, I was standing in line and then I see the kick and sure enough, he takes it to the house, but you know, didn't, didn't think they were going to kick it to him. And, and I mean, we did what we did. Uh, Devin got some daylight and, and nobody could catch him. You know, um, I actually, I heard on a recent podcast with, uh, I think it was um, Chris Sims. He was a uh, teammate of Nathan Vasher down in Texas. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, one, one of the first, like, uh, one of the conversations he had before that big Super Bowl run with Nathan, because, uh, I, I believe Nathan was returning punts his rookie year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, obviously he had the field goal return against the 49ers. And, um, he remembers, because Chris is like, oh, you're not doing punts anymore? And Nate was like, no, 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 no. That, that, Devin, that, like, I'm, I'm fat, I'm fast. De- De- Devin's faster. Devin's yeah. way faster. <laughs> and he was just like in hysterics about like how fast this kid was. And yeah, and you know, he was 200 pounds. He was not little. That's what no. kind of made him different was he was he was physical. He he was built. He was legit 200 pounds and and could get up to top speed quick, you know, two three steps. He he was at top speed. He could stop and go you know, as good as anybody ever. And he was 200 pounds, which, you know, Dante Hall was the guy who kind of came before him, you know, stop and go, you know, highlight reel, but he was tiny and Devin was legit, could break tackles. And, 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 you know, that's what, that's what made him special. He was legit four, three, but could stop and go and, and was physical enough to, to make guys, you know, miss when they actually got hands on him. So I know it cuts off there a little at the end guys. Um, I actually had about 10 more minutes of interview with Cam, uh, there was a couple times throughout the process that his uh, he would receive a call during the interview, and with the app we were using, it um it like stops the call, gives you that recording, and then you kind of got to start over again. So there was a couple spots in there that were a little rough, but um 
overall a great interview. Uh, I really, really wish we would have caught, caught the last 10 minutes. I thought that was, there was just some great stuff in there. We talked about uh, Terrell Owens, Randy Moss, Brian Urlach are all going in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Cam's going to be there. Him and his family are going to be going for the ceremony to watch uh, you know, Urlacher get in. And uh, overall, it was just some really good stuff. But overall, I thought it was a uh, really good interview. I thought Cam put in some really good insight over uh, the Chicago Bears that I really grew up with and a lot of people I know grew up with. And, you know, um, even if you didn't grow up with them, if you've been a Chicago Bears fan for any sort of time, it was it was a great time to be a Bears fan watching them go to the Super Bowl while, you know, it, it sucks it ended in a loss. But that I feel like that team is going to have a special plate in a lot of special place in a lot of Chicago Bears fans' hearts. But um, anyway, also in that last 10 minutes, uh, Cam um, plugged a few of his things, so I'm just going to go ahead and plug that stuff for him. Um, he has a 7-on-7 seven seven, seven league that he runs for um, uh, potential prospects for colleges and stuff like that. It is uh, called Passing Down. You can look up more on uh, PassingDown.com. They are on the West Coast specifically right now, but they're trying to get to places like Dallas, Chicago. They're trying to really branch out. And um, there's been a lot of kids, great kids that come through there. And um, so that's been good. He is also a announcer for Fresno State football games. So uh, please, you know, look into that. Um, if if he announces any indication of how he was on his podcast, he's probably a great announcer. Um, as well as follow him, follow him on Twitter and Instagram at, at Cam Worrell. Um, a lot of great stuff is always blowing up Twitter. Um, whether it's, you know, football, basketball, he talks about a little bit of everything. Um, I really appreciate having you on the podcast cam. Once you listen to this, uh, you know, again, um, I hope to have you on in the future. Um, I feel like we had a really good conversation. I feel like, uh, I feel like we could talk a lot of bears, uh, moving forward. So anyway, moving forward, guys, I have a couple of more of interviews set up. Actually, I have, uh, Tom po- Tom Pollen, who is a Chicago Bears analyst, who's going to be joining me on Saturday to have a discussion. I'll probably try to get that uploaded by at the very latest Monday. And then on Tuesday, I'm going to be talking to Brad Squires, who is a White Sox and Chicago Bulls analyst, and we'll be talking some baseball. We'll be talking some uh, NBA draft. Uh, yeah, I got a lot of good stuff coming up. Also. If you like the music you've been hearing with my podcast, please go to uh, YouTube, go to Google, anything. Look up uh, Again and Again by Fire Fences. That is the band that uh, does my uh, theme song for the podcast, and they have this single out. They've had it out for four months now, Again and Again. It is, it's great stuff. This band is this band's really good. Um, they're, you know, they're in the gist of moving their way up, but I feel like they're going to get there before we know it. So, uh. Like I, like I say at the end of every podcast, hop on the bandwagon before it becomes a bandwagon. <laughs> it's a lot of great music. I think you'd really like the guys. Uh, lead singer has a really distinct voice. A uh, bunch, of, bunch of great guys. I, you know, nothing but good things to say about them. So anyway, uh, this is running a little long because of the uh, interview and everything anyway. So I'm just going to cut it off here. Be on the lookout for these new podcasts coming up. I'm putting in a lot of work for you guys. This is the Sports Rant with Duke Coughlin. Said to me that it's now or never.